would you turn with me to John chapter 7? We'll be reading verses 25 to 52. John 7, 25, and as you turn there, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for your prayers and your support uh, this past week as uh, family has been incredibly, incredibly sick, and thank you for uh, those of you who uh, uh, really just made, uh, helped to make uh, last Sunday happen in, in my absence. Um, it's uh, a lot going on, and it's, uh, but it was, uh, it was encouraging. I've heard a lot of encouraging and a lot of encouraging things, a lot of praises with regards just to the service last week, and I'm just thankful for, uh, for Twyla and her uh, leading us in time of, uh, uh, leading you in a time of singing. I wasn't here. And for Devin, for, uh, uh, for preaching, uh, especially when it was so last minute. But uh, everybody seems to be doing much better. Uh, one of us is still uh, a little sick. And I'm just thankful for your prayers and your support. I'm thankful that I'm also uh, pretty healthy, even, which is kind of surprising when you are having, dealing with kids who with snotty noses and coughing all in your face. But um, I'm actually quite surprised that I haven't caught what's been going around in my house. So, uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> so, we're in, uh, picking up in John chapter 7, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour has not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I, come, where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? It comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered then, 
Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this is the means by which you communicate to us. Lord, and the scriptures are clear about who you are and about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Father, we pray that you would encourage us through your word, that you would help us to see Jesus, to behold him, and that you would use this word, not what I have to say, but what your word says about Jesus, that you would use that to grow us in our faith and in our love for our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Origin stories or, or backstories can be really, really good, especially if they're told well. We love to hear the, the background of those perhaps that we admire or those that we look up to, those who have done have, or have made a incredible feats or accomplished something incredible and amazing in their life. We want to know what was their background like? What was their upbringing? What are those events in their life that, uh, that helped shaped, uh, shape who they are and helped them to accomplish the things that they did? We want to know a little bit more, perhaps to, just because we, we admire them or because we perhaps want to uh, glean from their life, things that we want to take for ourselves to perhaps imitate and learn from. In the Bible, the Bible is full of a lot of, a lot of stories. Unfortunately, not many of them are all that good. Now, what I don't mean by that is that they're not told well. They are told well, but what I mean is that the, the stories that we read about in the scriptures of these individuals, well, there isn't a, a whole lot about them that is all that great. In fact, the scriptures tell us a lot of uh, negative things about the characters and the people that we read about in, in his word, and God's word. Take, for instance, the example of, of Abraham. Abraham was a pagan before he was called out by the Lord, right? And, and once that happened, well, that didn't make him, you know, this blameless man. It wasn't until years later when he was declared righteous because of his faith in God. But prior to that, right, he was, he was selfish, he was a liar, and he constantly put his wife in harm's way in order to protect himself. Or take the story of of Jacob, right before Jacob was renamed Israel, which means one who strives with God, which he literally did because he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. But prior to that, he was a scoundrel, he was a crook, he, he, was, and he was also kind of a, a little despicable. <laughs> or even take the story of Joseph. Right before Joseph became the most powerful man on the planet after Pharaoh, well, he was a prideful young man, and in part it was because of his father's favoritism, but he wasn't afraid to flaunt that in front of his brothers, which led him to be sold to Egypt as a slave. Right, and so the Bible tells us these stories, and it seems like the Bible unashamedly tells us the faults and the weaknesses, the mistakes, and even the sins of these individuals, in part because so that we would learn to not... Uh, imitate their mistakes and their sins, but also in part to, 
so that we would know to not put our hope and our trust in a person, right? And as much as there, you know, there might be individuals that we look up to and admire, people who, uh, who maybe have passed away, but we would gladly take up their biography so that we can learn their lives from. But at the end of the day, we don't put our hope and trust in man because we all have our weaknesses, we all have our, our failures, we all make mistakes, and we all have sin in our life. But the story that we should always be looking to is the story of Jesus Christ, right? If we are to put our hope in anything or anyone, it is in him. And, you know, and unfortunately, maybe not unfortunately, but the scriptures don't tell us, right, everything there is to know about Jesus' story, right? In fact, the gospels summarize his upbringing was just a simple sentence, right? It tells us that, that he was obedient to his parents, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God, and that's all it tells us. And so the gospel is only focused on Jesus' life for like for just three years of his life. But what, we, but what we know about Jesus is plenty for us to put our hope in him. And the thing about stories, the thing that we all have in common about our stories is that everybody has an origin story or a back story, where you came from, your upbringing, you know, who were the individuals who were most involved in your life, and Everybody also has some sort of destination, like where are you headed? Where are you going in life? And we see that also in the story of Jesus Christ. And this is the, a matter of confusion with the people in, this, in the passage that we just read. And so in the passage, there's a confusion about the origin of Christ and also his destination. And so... There's a lot that the people have to say about Jesus. So starting out in the passage, we find out that, that, uh, that the word has gone out, that the Pharisees really, really, really hate Jesus to the point that they want to kill him. So now people are aware of this. And so during, and so during this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, the crowds are just listening in. It's kind of like a tennis match where they're just kind of like going back and forth, right? Until finally, there's silence, Jesus has the last word, and then the Pharisees have nothing more to say. And it's at that point that the crowds are beginning to wonder, what's going on here? You know, here is Jesus. There's an opportunity for the Pharisees to arrest Jesus because we know that they hate Jesus, but they're not doing that, and, my, and even more so, they're, they're silent. They're not saying anything. Perhaps they're beginning to believe Jesus. Maybe they're affirming what Jesus is saying. But the crowds themselves are also just, they're also confused about Jesus' identity. The crowds have come to believe that no one will know where the Christ will come from is what they say. Now, to clarify that statement, they understood the scriptures well as God's people, as one who were, who were always in the temple and listening to the scriptures. They knew the scriptures well. They knew where the Messiah would come from. But what they meant was that when the Messiah, when the Christ comes, that it will seemingly be out of nowhere, that when he appears, he just appears, and when he appears, he will bring uh, uh, Israel's redemption from, uh, from, uh, from, the, from Roman government and establish them as their, own, as their own people, as their own land. But here is Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah, but they all know Jesus. They know where he comes from. They know where he grew up. They know that his ministry has been public for some time now. They've heard of him. Some of them have even seen him. So he's been around for a while, so he didn't really come out of nowhere. And so Jesus doesn't really fit their description of the Messiah. 
And then later on, after Jesus makes several more statements, there still seems to be some confusion about who he really is, right? Because the, the crowds later on towards the end of the passage in seven, chapter 7, people are beginning to ask themselves, is he the prophet that Moses talked about way back uh, when the, God's people were wandering in the wilderness and, God, and Moses spoke to them from, from Mount Sinai? and told them that a prophet would come from among their own people that would lead the people. Is he that prophet? Or could Jesus actually be the Christ? Is he the Messiah? But then they're thinking he can't be the Christ because Jesus comes from Galilee. And so we, we know where he comes from. We know where he was raised. We know his parents. We know his siblings. We know where his house is. Where his house is. And so he can't be. But Jesus, yes, he may have been raised in Galilee, but he does come from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Galilee. And the Pharisees were confused about his origin as well. I mean, even the officers, right? These, there are officers who are sent to arrest Jesus, and these are not Roman guards, but these are, uh, these are officers, these are guards who are in charge of the temple who come from the tribe of Levi, and they're, and they're charged by the Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus, and even they don't have no idea what to do with Jesus. They come back to the Pharisees empty-handed and say, like, we have, nobody ever spoke like this man. So the people had no idea what to think about Jesus. They were so, so confused. Right, and that's no different today, right? Everybody has an opinion about Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not. You have some you have an opinion, you have a thought about Jesus, right? Even amongst Christians, there's differing opinions about who Jesus is and what he came to do. But it's always important for us to go back to the scriptures, right? Whenever we think about, whenever we want to get to know somebody, we might ask other individuals about who this person is, but we won't know a person until we actually go to them and ask them about them. There's nobody who is more clear about who Jesus is than Jesus himself. And that's why it's always important for us to always go back to the scriptures and tell it, and so that we would know what does the scriptures say? What does Jesus say about who he is and what he came to do? So then in verse, verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he's taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? So the crowds appeared to believe in Jesus, but it wasn't the right kind of faith. Because it says they believed in him, but yet they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs? In other words, they believe in Jesus to some degree, they might think he's, they believe in him as a prophet, perhaps as a miracle worker, but they don't associate him with the Christ. They don't think he's the Christ. They're still expecting the Christ to come when the Christ is actually standing right in front of them. Now, Jesus affirms their knowledge of him. And so, right, they're, they're right in knowing who he is and where he comes from. They know his parents. They know his siblings. So he's not denying where he was raised. But where does Jesus actually come from? Jesus comes from the Father. It's not that he proceeded out of the Father like a child proceeds out of the womb from the mother, but still Jesus comes, what Jesus is saying, he comes from the same place where God dwells. And Jesus did not come to the world of his own accord, but he was sent by the Father. And if they really knew God the Father, then they would know Jesus because Jesus and the Father are one. 
In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When we compare children to their parents, right, we can see some of the resemblance, most obviously in their physical features. But if we spend enough time with them and get to know them a little bit, well, we can also see some other resemblances where we can, we can say like, oh, the, this boy has his father's uh, personality. He has his father's uh, compassion, maybe perhaps even his anger. We might say this little girl has her, fa- has her mother's uh, humor or perhaps her, her compassion. And so we can see some of the resemblances. And so the reason why the crowds are not able to discern Jesus' identity is because they don't know the father. But if you just saw some stranger outside, you wouldn't know if they resembled their father you wouldn't, you wouldn't, or their mother. You wouldn't be able to tell if the apple fell far from the tree or not because you would have to know their parents. So with Jesus, so in this, in this whole exchange, what Jesus is getting at and what he's getting at at the beginning is that they don't know the father. If they knew the father, they would know the son because Jesus and the father are 100% alike. They share the exact resemblance. There's nothing that distinguishes them. They're exactly the same. Though there's different persons, but they are one. Jesus has God the Father's compassion, his grace, his honesty, his mercy. He's got a zeal for his own glory. He's got his anger towards unrighteousness and sin. All that is there from the Father and the Son. But without knowing what the Father is like, you can't know what the Son, you can't know, you can't know if the Son is like, like the Father. So that not, the, the people are not only confused about the identity of Jesus and where he comes from and his background, but secondly, they're also confused about his destination and where he's going. Verse 31 says, yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? Again, it wasn't the right kind of faith in Jesus. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So the Pharisees are seeking for a way to arrest Jesus, but the author tells us that, there, that there was a, it didn't happen because divine sovereignty was at work. But the ultimate reason, and in the passage, I mean, this whole exchange, this, I think there's, there's three times where there's an attempt to arrest Jesus, but it always ends in failure. And the reason is because God's sovereignty is over this. The reason why nobody lays a hand on Jesus is because God will not allow anyone to put a hand on Jesus. It's in part because it was not yet time for Jesus to be delivered up to be crucified. And then some of those who showed some kind of faith, but it wasn't the right kind of faith, begin to ask about the quantity of miracles. Here's Jesus. He does some miracles, but when the Christ appears, will he do more miracles than Jesus? And so, yeah, so still very confused about who Jesus is. And then Jesus makes this statement about his destination, right? You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. 
after his crucifixion, the destination of Jesus is to be with the Father, to be at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. That is his ultimate destination. That is where Jesus is headed, right? And so part of it was the crucifixion. To get there, he had to go through the crucifixion to be crucified and pay the penalty for our sins. But, this, but his ultimate destination was heaven. And so for Jesus, right, the, the earth was not his permanent home. Right, and I think part of the reason is that Jesus never settled down and had a family and kids and had a career and established a home for himself was because he knew his days were numbered. Right, not that it's bad to settle down and have a family, have kids. Those are the things that please the Lord. But Jesus is different in the sense that he came to the earth to establish his kingdom, to preach the gospel. He, know, he knew he only had a limited amount of time to do that. And so he will not be distracted by anything else. His aim was to preach the gospel because this is the message that people needed to hear in order to be saved from their sins. Right? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head is what Jesus says. But Jesus was seeking the better homeland. Right? In the book of Hebrews, and speaking about the Old Testament patriarchs, it tells us that, that they were seeking a better homeland. They were wandering and going from place to place. And they were seeking somewhere better, a place that you could never find here on earth. Right? And as God's children, it's the same for us. Right? As adopted children of God through Christ, right, we shall long to be with God. It's not, not that it's bad to establish a career and establish a home and have family. But the mission doesn't change, right? We continue to preach the gospel and continue to imitate the life of Christ so that we may grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. But in the end, right, we don't, we don't make it our, our, our ambition. We don't make it our aim to make earth the most comfortable place to live in. That's not what our lives are about. Our lives are about glorifying Jesus Christ and fixing our eyes on heaven because that is where, that's where we are destined to go. That's what we're looking forward to, right? And, and as we long for that, and as the Spirit of God abides with us, right, we should long to be with God, to walk with God, as Adam did in the garden back in Genesis. But sometimes, right, we can be distracted from that destination. We've been, we can be distracted from fixing our eyes heavenward. Sometimes we're, we can be we're driving on the road, on this narrow road, Right, and we see a sign and we decide that, well, well, we could take a left or take a right and just for just a brief time and be distracted. We can deviate from the path and end up being in that distraction for much, more, much longer than we anticipated. Or sometimes trials and tribulations come into our life, like an angry driver that might come to your side right, and just push you off the road. Sometimes that can happen. But the question is, whether it's distraction or just veered off the road by trials and tribulations, how do you get back on the road? How do you do that? And one way, I think, is to see our weekly gatherings like this morning as a means of grace. My prayer for you is that having perhaps, after having a, maybe a, an eventful week, an exhausting week, a, a, a busy week, perhaps an emotionally turbulent week, Maybe after having a week where you're just drowned in sin or having a week where maybe you're just bored with life, that you would come here on Sunday mornings and be refreshed and that the, that the compass of your heart would be recalibrated to point to the true north, which is God. 
That's my prayer also for the, for the, for the community groups as well, that these things would function as a means of grace, as a means of getting back on the road and fixing your eyes heavenward to, to help remove you from the distractions in life so you can continue to fix your gaze upon Jesus, who is your hope. Right, and when you've got somewhere to be, right, you fight and you push through the distractions to make sure you get there. And so we, and even through trials, right, Jesus, Jesus didn't see the cross as a distraction from his ultimate destination, but it was the means to his destination. And sometimes through trials and the testing of our faith, sometimes that's necessary in order to help propel us forward to get to our final destination. Sometimes the Lord, not sometimes, but the Lord uses those events and those situations in your life in order to increase your faith, to draw him to draw you closer to him and to help move you forward to make it that much closer to your ultimate destination, to continue to help fix your gaze heavenward. So for Jesus, it's the same. The cross was the means to his final destination. And at this point, Jesus says no, that he will no longer be around and that the people will search for him but not find him. And so at that statement, the people are confused, just like everything else that Jesus says. They're wondering, where does Jesus intend to go? And Jesus makes this statement again later in chapter 8 and also in John 13, 33, where and he's speaking to his disciples. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so here in, in chapter 13, Jesus means it differently. He's speaking to his disciples. I am leaving you. And where I'm going, you cannot come. You've been following me for these three years. But now the time of following me has come to an end. But it's up to you to remain and continue to preach the gospel. But one day you will be with me. But for the Jews, for these Pharisees, he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he means that differently. And the reason why they cannot be where Jesus is is because they don't believe in him. But in what way will the crowds, will the people be seeking Jesus after he is gone? And it's difficult to say with, with certainty what Jesus means by that statement. But one thing we can be certain about is that there will come a day when people will seek the Lord and it will be too late. Because the scriptures promise us that Jesus Christ will return, not as the Savior, but as the King. Right, and he will bring those who are left to bring to he will bring them with him to reign in heaven. And then at, there will come a point. At that point, people will seek the Lord. But at that point, it will be too late. I mean, just think, the Lord, the Bible doesn't tell us when Jesus returns, but it tells us that he will return. And that could be at any moment. I mean, the Lord could come and interrupt this sermon right now. Or he would come tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow is never promised. The next hour is never promised. Isaiah 55, 6 tells us, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. 
and toward God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Right, and those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right now is a time of salvation. Now is a time to seek the Lord because tomorrow is not promised. And those who do, the Lord is compassionate towards them. So then after having stated his origin and his destination, we then conclude with the glorification of Christ. Verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it would be helpful to remember that this exchange between Jesus and the crowds and the Pharisees is happening during the Feast of Booths. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit more about this, but the Feast of Booths was, a, uh, was, a, was a, a moment of celebration that would last about seven to eight days. And it was a time to remember the Lord's gracious provision and faithfulness during uh, Israel's wilderness wanderings after leaving Egypt. It was a, a reminder of God's continued provision for the people when they had nothing. And so that was the feast, that's what the Feast of Booth was about, and this, is what, this was happening during that celebration. And so the last day, whether that was the seventh or, eight, or the eighth day, the last day would be the climax of the entire event. So on the last day of the feast, along with other rites and rituals, a golden flagon, which is just a large vessel used for drink, was filled with water. And then along with, other, along with the, the daily offering of wine, this... Uh, the, the wine and the water and the flagon would be poured into silver bowls, and then the silver bowls would be poured out before the Lord as, a, as an offering before the Lord. And the point of it was to, was to symbolically uh, uh, refer to the Lord's gracious provision of water in the wilderness when there was no water. But it also points forward. So it points backwards, and it also points forward to the Messianic age when Christ returns. And so several passages might have been in mind as they celebrated this, and as this water and as this wine was poured out before the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Zechariah 13, 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Then Zechariah 14, 16 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So here is Jesus on the climax of the entire event of that celebration on this last day. Here is Jesus. He stands up before the crowds and loudly proclaims that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what Jesus means is that he is the fulfillment of this entire feast. Physical thirst, as we all know, is, a sign of is the first sign of dehydration. And if that thirst is never quenched, well, you die. Water makes up about 50 to 70% of our body weight. Just 1% dehydrated. 
dehydration negatively affects your mind, your emotions, your attention, your memory, your motor coordination. And if you're still not drinking enough water, then your, water, your, your blood becomes much more concentrated and your kidneys begin to hold on to, that, to, to the water. And so you're going to the bathroom less. And then as the blood becomes much more concentrated, your heart rate begins to increase in order to regulate blood, blood pressure. And if you're still not drinking enough water at that point, that means that your body cannot regulate its body temperature, which then causes hypothermia. And over time, your body begins to dry up, you get weak, you get headaches, you get convulsions, you get muscle contractions, you get wrinkled skin, and ultimately, ending in death. I mean, a human being can only go so long without drinking any water. What Jesus says, what he's trying to communicate is that there is a spiritual thirst that if it is not quenched, will slowly kill a person and lead to a spiritual death. And the tragic part is that most people are not even aware that they're thirsty. And what kind of thirst should people be experiencing? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they shall be satisfied. So it is this thirst that man needs quenched. It is his thirst for righteousness, a righteousness that God requires, a righteousness that God demands, that if not met, will lead to spiritual death. And our good works are not good enough to alleviate the thirst, the spiritual thirst that we have. It's not going to cut it. To be permanently hydrated, you must turn to Jesus and follow him. Jesus says that with his entrance into the world, that the messianic age has come, that the Lord pours out his spirit on all those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And so that what happens is that the spirit of God applies the righteousness of Christ to the person's account, to your account, if you have yet to believe in Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus and you don't know that you're thirsty, I'm telling you that you are thirsty. And you need that thirst quenched. That only comes by believing in Jesus Christ. And that now is a time of salvation. Now is a time to seek the Lord while he may be found. And during this time, so back to the passage, in this time as Jesus is speaking in these crowds in this celebration, it was not yet time for people to people have their spiritual thirst quenched because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that glorification would not happen until Jesus first is crucified. But for us, right, who stand on this side of the cross, right, that work has already been completed. And so we receive the benefits of Jesus' completed work. Right, the sending of the Spirit of God will not occur until Jesus is glorified and not a moment sooner. And the reason is because Jesus' glorification is a result of his completed work. The glorification of Christ happens after his crucifixion. So Jesus, in order to receive that glorification, in order to be seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, he must walk the path of suffering and be crucified to a cross. And only then he is seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father and made head over all things. And then as a result of his completed work, we receive the benefits of that work. 
And it's through his completed work that we can endure all things in this life as we make it our aim to reach our final destination. The Spirit is given to us as a result of his completed work, and it is a Spirit who abides with us, who is in us, and works within us, and helps us during perilous, perilous times on the road. But the Spirit of God is the one who helps us, who guides us into all truth, who helps us to understand the Scriptures, who strengthens us, who brings the Scriptures to remembrance when we need them most. The Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, who causes us to bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord works powerfully in your life, and He's working even now. And that is one of the incredible benefits that we receive through Jesus' completed work on the cross and His glorification. And His completed work also means that it's done, that your life has been purchased, that you have been redeemed that a home has been purchased for you in the heavens and it's, all, and it's just there and it's just waiting for you. And that nothing is going to take it away. And also, you and I are not like the crowds in the passage who are confused about who Jesus is. You have come to know the Lord right, through his spirit, through believing in him, through his word. You know who Jesus is. Or you're like Peter, who makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ, and, God's, and Jesus says, blessed are you, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then later on, later in life, when Peter writes his letter to the churches, in 1 Peter 1.8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? Even though you don't see the Lord right face to face, you don't see him now with your physical eyes, you believe in him, you trust in him, and you love him. And many of us, if not all of us, have known him much more personally, much more intimately through trials in our lives. That's, it's encouraging to know that we know the Lord. Right? We're not as confused as the crowds are in the passage, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt who the Lord is. And because we know who the Lord is, we have salvation in his name. So as you continue to move forward and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, where there are a lot of things that can distract us. There are a lot of things that can push us off the road but you never have to be confused about who Jesus is. Those things that happen in your life, don't, that they're not intended to get you to be confused about who Jesus is. They're not intended to make you doubt who Jesus is. But the Lord actually uses those moments and those situations in your life to even just show himself more to you, more clearly, that, he, that you may know him all the more, I mean, more intimately. That's encouraging. So continue to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Continue to fix your eyes heavenward. Because that's our ultimate destination. And I pray that as we gather together on a regular basis, whether that's here on Sunday mornings or in a community group or a Bible study or just having or over lunch, that you would be reminded that the Lord is with you, 
that you have a place in heaven's guaranteed to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that that is your ultimate destination. What, what makes heaven so wonderful is not just the fact that we have a home there waiting for us, but it's the fact that Jesus is there, that God is there. And we should always long to be with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you give us in this life. They're a means of enjoyment. They're a means by which you, you bless us. Especially considering that we do not deserve anything that you give to us. And most of all, we do not deserve your son. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You have purchased us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and you have made us your own. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would continue to help us and guide us and protect us. And may we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.